Okay. Um, good morning, and thanks for coming. Um, I wanted to talk a little, well, let's start with Shavuos, a timely topic. Um, so as we approach Shavuos, Man Matan Toratenu, when we think about the Kabbalat HaTorah that occurred at Har Sinai, two words that come to mind are Na'asev and Nishma. Um, these two elements are often explained as Na'asev, we will do, and Nishma, we will understand. Um, and Rav Salvechik actually explains these as the two components of Shmirat HaMitzvot. We do the mitzvot, we keep them, and we attempt to understand them. Um, however, at the Matan Torah ceremony itself, there seems to be a certain downplaying of the nishma aspect, the understanding, and the focus is on the na'aseh, the doing. Um, I'll give you three examples. Firstly, if you look in the Tanakh itself, there are actually three times that the Jews accept the mitzvot. The first time, we say only, the first time is initially when Moshe first speaks to B'nai Israel and tells them what's going to happen, per chaf, we say, na'aseh, we will do. No nishma. And then chafdalid, twice we accept. First time again, we say na'aseh, and only the last time do we say this na'aseh and nishma. Somehow na'aseh and nishma came to be the phrase that was stuck in our consciousness, but in truth, na'aseh was what we said more regularly. Um, also, in the Gemara, there are two, um, in, in Shabbos, where it discusses Matan Torah, there's also a downplaying of the Nishma and a um, focus on the Na'aseh. Um, firstly, the Gemara says that we are rewarded for saying Na'aseh before we said Nishma. That because of that, I think it says the Malachim created crowns for everybody that they, um, that they wore. It, would, it was right that we said Na'aseh before we said Nishma. Okay, and the second example, which is on the same page, is um, the concept of kafa aleim har kikigit, that the, you know, the famous story that the, let me try to put this back and see how that goes. Okay, that um, the mountain was held over our heads, and we were forced, you know, and said, well, if you accept the Torah, then, um, if you accept the Torah, great, if not, you know, goodbye. So we really weren't, didn't have so much of a choice. We didn't have time to really think about the mitzvot, to evaluate them, to accept them. So the focus, again, is on, okay, we'll take it. We're not going to really look into it. Okay, so this is at the Matan Torah ceremony itself. Um, however, our question, what I'd like to explore today, is also moving, you know, after leaving Matan Torah, is there a value for us today to try to uncover the reasons for mitzvot and to try to fulfill this nishma aspect? Um, does, does God want us to analyze the Torah and deduce its rationale, or does he want us simply to keep? Um, and this question has been grappled with by scholars throughout our history till today. It's not a resolved question. So what I'd like to do is show you some of the sources, and then you'll be able to come to your own conclusions. Okay, so let's first look at the Torah itself. Um, most mitzvot in the Torah are presented simply as normative actions. We're not given reasons alongside it. There are some exceptions, but for the most part, we get a mitzvah, and then we're supposed to do it. Um, some of the most of the Tamehah mitzvot that we think of are discussed by Rishonim or contemporary scholars, but the Torah itself doesn't give us the reasons. Um, now, this doesn't lead us to any definitive conclusions as to why the reasons are left out. Um, there's certainly much material in the Torah that, is le that we've expounded on and 
God it decided not to include, that doesn't mean it's a taboo topic or something that we're not supposed to look into. But I just want to point out that in the Torah itself, we're not given so much raw material how to figure it out. Okay, so the Gemara tries to figure out why. Why is it that when we're given the, the mitzvah, why shouldn't the Torah tell us why we're keeping it? Wouldn't that help us to relate to it and to understand it? Okay, so let's take a look um, on the source sheets. Yeah, source number one. Um, okay, source number one is from Zavarim, because Zavarim is actually a case where we do get reasons alongside the mitzvot. And this comes in reference to the mitzvot of the king. Okay, so we'll take a look at that selection. Um, so when you come to the land, and then um, when the people come to the land, then they'll say, we want a king. Um, okay, so here are some of the parameters. So you should put a king on yourself. Um, one that God chooses, and it should be someone from amongst the Jewish people. It shouldn't be an Ishnachri. Okay, now here come the limitations of the king. The king receives many limitations. Um, he has a lot of, well, I'm already postulating why, so I'm going to stop, step back. Let's see what the Torah says. Rak lo yerbelo susim, velo yashivet ha'am mitzrayma, leman harbot sus, v'ashem amar lachem lo tosifun lashuv badarach od. Okay, so here's its first restriction. You shouldn't take too many horses. Why? So that's the bold part. Um, so that way he won't go back to Mitzrayim in order to, in order to attain all these horses. Um, and Hashem said that we're not supposed to go back to Mitzrayim. Now Mitzrayim is always the place of um, the best horses. You know, even in our description of leaving Mitzrayim, the focus is on the Merkava and all the horses and the chariots. That was where, if you wanted to get a great horse, you go to Mitzrayim. So don't take too many horses because if you do, that means you're going to have a real relationship with Mitzrayim. Not supposed to have a relationship with Mitzrayim. It doesn't mean here necessarily that we're going to re- physically return to Mitzrayim, but we're supposed to have a distance from Mitzrayim. Um, a, spir- a, a, a physical and spiritual distance. So if we need what they have, then we're going to have to have relations with them. So step back. Okay, here's the king's second limitation. Um, also don't have too many wives. Why? Because then these wives won't sway his, they'll, they'll sway your heart. Okay, then the last one, he shouldn't have too much, um, too much money. Interesting, this one doesn't have um, a reason next to it. I just wonder if it's the same. Okay, whatever. Um, okay, and then it goes on to the positive things that he has to do. He has to write for himself a Mishnah Torah, and he should, he should have his own copy of the Torah with him. And here again it says, why does he have it with him? By Ta'imo, he should vikarabo kol yimei chayav, l'man yilmad li'yurat Hashem elokav, l'shmorat kol devrei Torah hazot, v'yata chukim ha'ila la'asotam. So he keeps this Torah with him so that he'll remember to always fear God and to always keep the mitzvot. And then chaf lebilti rum levavo meachav ulebilti sormen hamitzvah yaminusmo l'man yarich yamim amamlachto who banav bekerav Yisrael. So he's also not supposed to become um, raise his heart too high above everyone else to become arrogant, and he also shouldn't let the power get to his head that he should sway you know from the mitzvot. He's also equally obligated in the mitzvot, just like everybody else. Lots of kings made that mistake in thinking I have more power. I'm not like everyone else. When it comes to the mitzvot, you are like everyone else. 
Okay, so this is an unusual piece in the Torah because we really have about 50% of it is spent on why. We don't usually get that. Okay, so the Gemara talks about it, and that's source number two. Okay, Ba'amar Rabbi Yitzchak, Malo Torah. Why aren't we given the reasons for the Torah, for the mitzvot alongside in the Torah? Because there are two places where the reasons were revealed, and one of the greatest people stumbled on these two places. Ktiv, Dvarim Yudzayan, that's what we just read. Lo yarbelu nashim, amar shlomo, ani arbevelo asor. So it said, don't take too many wives. And Shlomo said, well, I can handle it. I can take all these wives, and I'm not going to turn. I, 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 I'm strong enough. Uktiv, Malachim Aleph Yud Aleph, Vayihila Eitzignat Shlomo, Nashav Ketua Levavo. Well, that's exactly what happened. He married a lot of women, and they swayed him. And we point out here, Shlomo also married a lot of non-Jewish women. You know, whether it's a big debate whether they converted or not, but that was a part of the... Um, the turning of his heart, it was that the women were from all over. That was part of the way that he spread out his kingdom, and he made so many allies by marrying into them. And that's what swayed his heart. Okay, the second case. Uktiv, Devar Mudzayin, Lo Yarbe Lo Susim, Ba'amar Shlomo, Ani Arbe Velo Ashiv. He said, I can do it. I can get a lot more horses, and I won't go back, meaning I won't become too close with Mitzrayim. But what actually happens? So this is talking about the price of if you want to buy chariots from Mitzrayim, it costs like 600 shekel. But if you read even a few psukim before in Malachim, the whole paragraph is about Shlomo's trading with Mitzrayim. And Shlomo was very connected with Mitzrayim. You know, he married the, the daughter of the king of Mitzrayim. It was part of, his, part of the way that he spread his power. And part of the way also I would say that he was trying to be an Orla Goyim. But it backfired. Interestingly, a generation later, our enemy is from Mitzrayim. She, um, once Rehavam becomes the king, Shishak is his enemy who was hidden in Mitzrayim. So, it didn't, first of all, it didn't work. And also, it, in terms of Jashlomo himself, he said, I can do it without getting too close. But he didn't. He did get too close. Okay, so this first source is pointing out that if we had all the reasons, it would be dangerous. Because we can come to say, well, if this is the reason... I don't need it. You know, I can do it without that. Um, just for example, I was thinking of this in terms of, you know, with my kids. When I tell them to do something and I don't give them a reason, there's no, there's no, not, I'm not suggesting this as ideal parenting, but um, there's, no, there's no arguing. Go to sleep. Wear this shirt, you know, and hopefully they just do it. But once you say, well, you need to go to sleep because otherwise you're going to be tired, tomorrow morning. Well, I'm not going to be tired. Even when I go to sleep, you know, in a half hour, I'm still not going to be tired. Or, um, you know, I'm not going to be cold. I'm not cold. So why, you know, if you don't get into, once you discuss reasons, then I'm sure it's much more extreme with teenagers. I don't have teenagers. Um, But I remember being a teenager. (laughs) My mother remembers when I was a teenager. Um, So they, um, once you give a reason, you're giving room to say this doesn't apply to me. Um, and just if you think of it in terms of mitzvot, it makes sense as well. Um, for example, the mitzvah of kashrut. The rashbam, the rambam all talk about how kashrut is related to health. Right? We don't eat these foods because they're not healthy. Now, what happens when a study comes out, as studies do all the time, that a food that's not kosher is healthy, or a food that is kosher is not healthy? So then what happens? If we're only doing it because of health, well, did science uncover something? It just leaves open. It's a dangerous issue. Um, and just one third example where this comes up 
And this is a famous, I would say this example is famous because um, Rav Salvechik talks about it in his, in the article, The Common Sense Rebellion Against um, Halachic Authority or Against Torah Authority. Um, it's the Midrash about Korach, that Korach, that Korach came to Moshe with a common sense rebellion. He said, the myths don't make sense. So Korach said, if the point of Tzachelet, right, the blue string on the CC, is that we look at the Tzachelet, and it reminds us of the heaven, of the sea, I think, then the heavens, that reminds us of God. So how much better, if I wear clothing that's all blue, then I'm thinking about God all the time, that's even so much more extreme. And then he came to him a second time, and he said, um, he said about the mezuzah, he said, you know, if I have a room, if the point of the mezuzah is to have Shema Yisrael in that room, or to have Torah in that room, what if I have a room that's full of Sfarim, it's full of Torah, do I, why do I need to have a mezuzah? Isn't that so much better? So, again, it's the same, you know, so Rav Salvejic talks about how it's the same phenomenon of saying, I figure out the reason, so I have a better way to do it. So I think that's really the, one of the main arguments against Tameh HaMitzvot, that it opens up, it's dangerous. Okay, another, um, I think the Gemara talks about a different aspect as well, why Tameh HaMitzvot is, um, is frowned upon. Um, and then, to, okay, let's, the aspect that emerges from these sources is that the ideal way to keep the mitzvot is as edicts from an all-powerful king, with, which we don't suggest logic behind them. You know, when we, when you have this trust of somebody, you don't, you know, if someone says something, you just accept it. It's, there's a certain, this concept of the gezera. It's something that's decreed. And we don't have the power to wonder why. Um, let's, let's take a look. You'll see it better in the Gemara. Source number, um, yeah, source number three. Okay, let's start. Okay, on the second line in source number three. Um, this is the this is the um, the midrash, but the Gemara also quotes the midrash. Um, second line where it says Amar Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah. It's after the comma. Amar Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah. Minayin shelo yomar adam ef shilachol basar chazir ef shilavos kilayim ef shilavo al haerba ella efshi aval maaseh avisha b'shamayim gazaralei. It's Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah said we shouldn't. No one. Someone shouldn't say. It's also a famous um, Gemara. Someone shouldn't say, I don't want to eat, um, eat pig, or I don't want to wear um, mixtures of wool and linen kilayim, or I don't want to um, have a forbidden relationship, but rather one should say, I do want to. But what should I do? God commanded me that I can't. Okay, so this implies that, why would I say I don't want to eat meat? So I would say maybe just to go back to that example for a minute, I don't want to eat pig because it's not healthy. You know, you walk by and you look at it, oh, that's disgusting. That would clog my arteries. So don't say that. Say that the reason I'm not doing it is because God commanded me, and that's the end of story. So it's, again, this um, pushing away from trying to, to, from making up your own, from coming up with your own reasons why, and rather this concept of the Gzeira. Abisha Bashamayim. He's in the Shamayim. We're here. We accept what he says. Okay, so this is, you know, this is, I think, a second trend in the Gemara. There are other Gemaras that use this concept as well about the Gezerah, the decree. Um, now, while the two sources that I showed you seem to frown upon the endeavor of Tameha Mitzvot, giving reasons for Mitzvot, I want to point out the Gemara is not an organized philosophy book. Um, we have pieces, perspectives in the Gemara. But one Gemara on, it, on its own, I would say when you're trying to figure out a philosophical question, you have to look brother. It's giving you a piece. The goal is not to give you um, a full picture on any philosophical topic. 
So these are certain pieces that give you a perspective about Tama Hemetzot, not the entire picture. Um, we also have contradictory sources, right, as always. So there's other sources in the Gemara as well. I just want to show you one source where you see that there's, this was a debate. It wasn't something that everyone accepted that Tama Hemetzot wasn't a good thing. Um, that's source number four. Okay, the, the Mishnah starts. Um, the Mishnah talks about different things that if someone says um, in, I think it's in Shul, if they ask them to be quiet. So the mission says, Ha'omer al-kansi por yagiu rachamecha, v'altovius kor shemecha, modim modim mashtigonto. So there's three, three different cases where um, if someone says something, that we ask them to be quiet. So I want to focus on the first one. The first one is if, if someone says um, that on the bird's nest, God's mercy extends, we quiet them. Okay, so the question is why? Now, by the way, this is a reference to the mitzvah of Shiluach HaKan, which is that, you know, the, if you take the eggs out of the nest, you first have to send the mother bird away, and then you take the eggs. So if you say that the, um, God's mercy extends even to the bird's nest, which is giving a reason for this mitzvah, then that person has to be quieted. Okay, so if you look in the Gemara, look on the second line of the Gemara, and see what it says, Ella al-kansi poyagiu rachamecha maitaima. Okay, so that's the question. So, why? Why do we have to make someone be quiet if they say that? So he says, So there were two, two Ma'amaram that disagreed about this. Rabbi Yossi Bar Abin, Rabbi Yossi Bar Zveda. Okay, so one of them said, Why do you have to um, be, make him be quiet? Because he's going to make all the other creations jealous. You know, why does God only have mercy on the bird? What about, I don't know, the zebra or the lion? You know, wh why, is it, why is it specific to the bird? Okay, so that's one opinion. And here's going to be what we, here's what we saw before. Because you're making God's laws into merciful laws. You're giving a reason why. But rather, they're, they're, it's a gezeira. It's a decree. What right do you have to figure out, you know, to look into God's law. You accept it as a decree. So here you see there's this tension among the Amoram at all. Are you allowed, according to the first opinion, yeah, you're supposed to understand the mitzvot. You're supposed to offer reasons, and this is even a good reason to offer for this. But you don't say this because of sensitivity to the other animals. But according to the second opinion, the reason you don't say it is because that's not what we do. It's a gezeira. It's a decree. You don't look into the reasons. So the Gemara, I mean, as always, I think, when you come to some of these more difficult issues, you see different perspectives, just as we do today when we talk about this. Both trends exist in the Gemara. And so what I'd like to do now is look at how through history this question has been dealt with. Okay, so um, many Rishonim, as soon as we think about the Rishonim, right, post-Gemara time, um, many Rishonim were very into Tameha Mitzvot, finding reasons for Mitzvot. Um, for example... The Rambam, exactly. And Mordechai is dedicated, a big piece of Mordechai is dedicated to going through all mitzvot. Um, and there was the Chukim and Mishpatim, mitzvot that the reasons seem obvious to us, and mitzvot that the reasons are more esoteric. Um, he, he goes through all the mitzvot and gives reasons. Um, the Sefer Achinuch, right, the anonymous, we don't know who the author is, but the Sefer Achinuch spends, takes every mitzvah, and each mitzvah says, Mishor Sheha Mitzvah. The reason for the mitzvah is this. This is the root of the mitzvah. Um, the Ramban, all through his commentary in the Torah, discusses what the Tameha mitzvot are. So there is, it seems to be the Rishonim felt comfortable with figuring out what the Tameha mitzvot were. 
Um, and I want to show you, I mean, of course, the Rambam is going to be the most extreme about this. So I just want to show you the Rambam's response to how, the way that the Rambam dealt with this. Uh, let's see, I think this is source, yeah, this is source seven. Um, it's the Rambam in Moranavuchim. It's part three, um, sh- um, chapter 31. Okay, I'm not going to, we're not going to read the whole thing, but I'll start from the beginning and I'll tell you when I'm skipping. Okay, now, of course, the Rambam also, like the way the Rambam writes in many cases, he's also writing a polemic. Like, he's arguing, he's, he doesn't just say what he thinks, but he's going to explain why the other opinions don't make sense. So, um, he's, you know, he's going, he's going to explain his own while also explaining why it doesn't make sense to take the other path. Okay, so that's what he does here. And, and uh, just, you know, he's going to speak in strong language also. Um, okay, so here's where, here's where it starts. There's a group of human beings who consider it a grievous thing that causes should be given for any law. What would please them most is that the intellect would not find a meaning for the commandments and prohibitions. Okay, so when we're looking at misvot, don't use your intellect. What compels them to feel thus is a sickness that they find in their souls. This is clearly not so sympathetic to this group. Um, a sickness to which they are unable to give utterance and of which they cannot furnish a satisfactory account. For they think that if those laws were useful in this existence and had been given to us for this or that reason, it would be as if they derived from the reflection and understanding of some intelligent being. Okay, so saying if, these, if we could figure out these laws, then it would mean that these laws came from, some, from someone intelligent. If, however, there is a thing for which the intellect could not find any meaning at all, and that does not lead to something useful, it indubitably derives from God, for the reflection of man would not lead to such a thing. Okay, it is as if, according to these people of weak intellects, man were more perfect than his maker, for man speaks and acts in a manner that leads to some intended end, whereas the deity does not act thus, but commands us to do things that are not useful to us and forbids us to do things that are not harmful to us. Okay, so, um, you know, Mordebuchim, even in, it's written originally in Arabic, this is a translation, but the English itself is um, not so simple. Um, so the problem is that people are uncomfortable with using their intellects to understand God because they feel like if they're doing this, they're equating God to us, right? We use our intellects. When we do things, we do things because they're reasonable. But if we say that God does that, then we're putting God on the same level as ourselves, just like we make sense, God makes sense. So this is why people, he says, stay away from understanding misvote. However, um, he's saying by doing this, what these people are in fact doing is making God lower than people. Because they're saying if something makes sense, then it must be human. If it doesn't make sense, then it must be God. So this is his argument that in a sense they're making God less. Because God himself is not as smart as us. Okay, now, you could certainly respond to this. This is not, you know, but this is the way that the Rambam formulates it. Um, okay, so then here's his perspective. That's his polemic against the other view. But um, his perspective, you skip to where it says, rather things are indubitably as we have mentioned. Let me see, I have a different copy. Oh, yeah, it's like towards the bottom, right after a question mark. Not, well, one, two, three, four, five. About 12 lines from the bottom. The, the word rather, it, the three lines from the end of the, I'm really getting too complicated. <laughs> After there's like a question mark, it says, rather things are indubitably, uh, uh, it says, rather things are indubitably as you have mentioned. Every commandment from among these 613 commandments exists either with a view to communicating a correct opinion, 
or to putting an end to an unhealthy opinion, or to communicating a rule of justice, or to warding off an injustice, or to endowing men with a noble moral quality, or to warning them against an evil moral quality. So the Rambam suggests here that every mitzvah has a reason. You know, the, the more obvious ones, such as, for example, um, tzedakah, um, maybe Shemitah from our Parsha, um, all different, all these mitzvot have reasons, as well as mitzvot that are more difficult, chukim, like kashrut, kilayim, shat, whatever, it, they all have reasons, and he goes through them and gives the reasons for each of them. So this is an extreme, this is, I would say, the most extreme perspective about Tamehem mitzvot. Every mitzvah is a reason, we can figure them out, God meant it for us to figure it out, and here they are. Okay, now I'd like to show you an opinion that's really the opposite of this. The other, so we're going to have to move forward to the 1900s now. Um, and we're going to look at the opinion of Yeshayahu Leibovitz, um, who was actually Necham Leibovitz's brother. He lived until the 1900s. I think he died in 1994. Um, and he was a philosopher. He wrote a lot about different Jewish topics. He was a pretty controversial figure. Um, so here's what he says about, um, about Tameh HaMitzvot. I think he expresses well the other extreme. Okay, so that is, let's see. Okay, that's source number five. Okay, this is from his book, Judaism, Human Values, and the Jewish State. Um, I'm not even sure we're going to, but you'll see he's directly arguing with what the Rambam says. So this is what he thinks the purpose of mitzvot are. He's going to take the, the Gezerah Gemara and, um, and expound on it. Okay, I'm going to start from... Let's see, I also have a different copy. I'm going to start from the sentence where it says, the halakha thus addresses a man's sense of duty. It's, um, yeah, on the fourth line. Okay, so it says, the halakha thus addresses a man's sense of duty rather than his emotions and inclinations. Okay, so halakha is about me doing what God commanded. It doesn't have to do with how I feel about it or religious high I get from it or the reason I think that God gave me this mitzvah. I do it because God commanded me to do it. Now, interestingly, the example he's going to take here to prove his point is tefillah. Now, tefillah is the one mitzvah I could say that it's usually the example of, of, of a mitzvah where we all can figure out, we feel like we know why we do it, or emotionally we feel very connected to it. But that's the mitzvah that he's going to play out, which I think makes it just even maybe a little more extreme. Okay, so he says, the mitzvah of prayer, the obligatory routine prayer of institutional religion, can serve as proof. The prayer book which determines the content of the mitzvah of prayer, does not express the spontaneous outpouring of the soul. It contains a text of fixed prayer, imposed upon one as a duty, and not conditioned by his spiritual or material needs or by his feeling. The same 18 benedictions, Shmonas, right, are recited by the bridegroom before his wedding ceremony, by the widower returning from the funeral of his wife, and the father who has just buried his only son. Recitation of the identical set of psalms is the daily duty of the person enjoying the beauties and bounty of this world and the one who the world has collapsed. The same order of supplication is prescribed for those who feel the need for it and those who do not. So I would say contrary to the way that we usually view prayer, I think the, mo the usual way we feel prayer is it's, it's our way of connecting to God. And we have a fixed text, but it's like almost a spontaneous relationship type of um, experience. But Yishayel Leva says, no, it's not that at all. That's not what prayer is all about. Prayer is about me saying something, I'm saying something fixed. 
And no matter what situation I'm in, if I'm in a happy situation, his proof is if I'm in a happy situation, if I'm in a terrible situation, I say the same thing. It doesn't matter. I don't say something specific dependent on my situation. So it's really not a spontaneous act at all. I'm just, I'm saying something fixed, and I do it because I was commanded to do it, not because emotionally it makes me feel connected. Uh, he actually says, this is a sentence in the next paragraph. He says, supplicatory outpouring of the soul is a psychological phenomenon, religiously irrelevant. Okay, so religion is not validating my emotional feeling. Religion is saying, God commanded you, you do this. But if you feel good about it, that's not part of your religious observance. And if anything, I think he's saying it takes away. We do things because we're commanded. And the emotional or religious high that we get from it is, is irrelevant. If you take a look at the, at the last paragraph, here's where he says in the strongest way, where he says, if the mitzvot. says, if the mitzvot are in the service of God, not of man, they may not be directed towards the satisfaction of human wants. Any attempt to ground them in human needs, cognitive, moral, social, and national, deprives them of their religious meaning. Um, if the commandments were expressions of philosophic cognition, had a moral function, or directed at the perfection of the social order, or the conservation of the people of Israel, the observant Jew would be doing service to himself, to society, or to the nation. Instead of serving God, he would be utilizing God's Torah for his own benefit as an instrument for satisfying his needs. The rationale of a mitzvah is service of God, not utilitarian interest. So he, essentially his principle is here, if you do the mitzvah because you feel good about it, like for example, I'm going to daven, I wake up this morning, I feel great, something great happened to me yesterday, I'm going to daven to Hashem. I'm doing that at that point because I'm serving myself. That's serving me. And the point of the mitzvah is not to serve me. The point of the mitzvah is to serve God. God commands us certain things. We do it whether we like it or not. And how we feel about it is irrelevant to our religious practice. Um, and he's also directly quoting the Rambam, that any of these reasons that the Rambam brings are, you know, that's, that's irrelevant. That's not the reason why we do it. We do it to serve God, and we don't use it as a benefit for us. Okay, so he's really taking the idea in the Gemara of the Gezerah, that we do it because God commanded, and that's the only thing here. Don't look into it. Don't try to find an emotional high. That's what our job is. So they didn't live, um, these are two extreme opinions. They certainly didn't live at the same time. The Rambam was in the 1100s and, and Leibniz was in the 1900s. But I think the Rambam formulates the extreme of there are Tamei HaMitzvot, you need to find them, you should connect to them, you should see the social benefit that comes out of the mitzvot. And on the other hand, you have Leibniz who says um, you should look at the mitzvot not as what they give to you, but as what you can give to God. And don't try to derive any emotional pleasure. Do it as the person who is commanded. Don't look for any reason. Okay. Now, um, of course, there always is a middle ground. I wanted to show you where the middle ground falls in. And the middle ground, I think, is expressed by Rep. Salvechik. Surprise. <laughs> um, okay. Now, I'm giving you just examples, but there are many other scholars who discuss this. Okay. So... Rav Salvechik discusses, as I started with, in the concept, um, when he talks about Nasev and Nishma, Rav Salvechik discusses that there are really two aspects of mitzvot. Right? There's the act, the act itself, the Nasev, and then there's the Nishma, the reason why we do the mitzvot. And for Rav Salvechik, both of these components were integral to the key of mitzvot. Ideal Shemir HaMitzvot involves both. It involves my act and it involves also my emotional connection. Now, he says there are generally, there are three questions um, that man can ask to try to understand things in the world. We can ask why, 
we can ask how, and we can ask what. Okay, so why, and this is not only limited to religious questions, but to anything in general. Why is motivations? You know, why does this, um, why does someone want this? Why is this um, commanded? Why is this, you know, why does hydrogen and oxygen make water? Um, okay, how is explanation to how, how it happens, how it functions. And what is an interpretation to establish meaningfulness? Okay, so what he says, and these categories will become clearer as we, you know, discuss them more. But um, what Rev. Salvatic says is that with God, we don't ask questions of why or how. Because these questions are beyond our understanding. God himself is beyond our understanding. So if we ask a why question, why does God command something, we're just asking something that's unattainable for us, that's unknowable. Um, we don't know the goal of the mitzvot. That's the why. And we also don't know how a mitzvah accomplishes the goal. Um, so he's, um, the, the, uh, the Rav always says God's will is self-justifying. The fact that God says it, that's in itself. We don't ask why. So then if we can't ask why, then how are we going to do the nishma part? How do we relate to the mitzvah that we need to do? So his theory is that we relate to the mitzvot through asking what. Okay, so what's what? What does that mean? Okay, so that's our last excerpt from um, on the last page. And it comes from his article, May We Interpret Chukim. But he ends up saying the same thing about Chukim and Mishpatim. He includes them in the same category. Okay, so asking what for mitzvah. What does it mean to ask what about a mitzvah? And he's going to use an example of Paraduma, which will be helpful in elucidating the questions. So he says, remaining is the third question, what? Which inquires about the meaningfulness of particular mitzvot to the individual and society. This is a legitimate pursuit. Nay, it may even be meritorious to inquire, how can I integrate and assimilate this mitzvah into my religious consciousness and outlook? What thoughts and emotions should I feel when the Para Aduma chapter is read in the synagogue? How can it help me achieve zvekut, a greater closeness to God? So, we're required to make this personal connection to the mitzvot. What makes these mitzvot, how do these mitzvot become meaningful to me? So it says, such questions reflect the need to be intellectually and emotionally engaged in the performance of a mitzvah, even of chukim. Now, one does not ask, here's the why and the how, why did God legislate para aduma? Or how does it purify the ritually defiled? But what is its spiritual message to me? Or how can I, as a thinking and feeling person, assimilate it into my world outlook? When we say the Shema, we experience an acceptance of divine sovereignty. But what should we feel when we scrupulously avoid admixtures of meat and dairy? So what the Rub does is he moves away from us trying to understand the objective reason why God gave a mitzvah. It exists. It's there. Can we figure it out? We can't. We're limited. We're living we have certain intellectual capacities, yes, but God's reasoning is beyond our understanding. And by the way, this is the Rav Salvechik's philosophy about every, it applies to different topics as well. Here I'm applying it to understanding the mitzvot, but it applies to topics like theodicy, it applies to topics like learning, you get, it extends. That God is, God works in a certain way. He's reasonable and rational, but it's a different kind of rationality than what we understand. We can never ask why a certain mitzvah happens. But at the same time, so what's our obligation? Are we just doers, like what Yeshayahu Leibovitz says? Just do it because we're commanded to? We can't understand you, but we're going to do it? But he says, no, it goes beyond that. Even though we don't know why God commanded it, 
we as people have a responsibility to make them so meaningful to us. Whether we get to God's objective reasoning is not relevant. We'll never know that. But we have an obligation to make that mitzvah meaningful. When we hear paraduma, we have to figure out what are we going to be thinking about. When we keep kosher, we also have to figure out, you know, how does that inspire me? And that's my obligation of nishma. That's my obligation of understanding and coming to terms with the mitzvot. We can't get to God's logic, but we can come to our own understanding of the mitzvah. Um, he, the Rav Salvechik quoted Rav Chaim that the ta'am, right, we always say ta'meha mitzvot, and ta'meha mitzvot is usually translated as the reason for the mitzvot. But Rav Chaim used to say ta'meha mitzvot is not the reason for the mitzvot, because, again, we can't, this is the brisk or derech, we can't understand the reason for a mitzvot. But ta'meha mitzvot is the taste of the mitzvot. How does the mitzvot feel to me? How do, I, how do I feel when I daven? How do I feel when I keep the mitzvot? And that's part of, you know, that's our experience of mitzvot, which we're required to feel. We're not supposed to be robots. We're supposed to be emotionally and intellectually connected. But not God's intellect, because we're not there, our own. Um, you know, Rav Salvechik quoted the Ramban about this, about the, the question of Shiluah HaKan, back to that Gemara that we looked at in the beginning. Remember, there were two opinions. One opinion said that you make the person be quiet because it's insensitive to the other animals. And the other opinion said that um, you make the person be quiet because um, it's, you're making God's gazero, his decrees, into Rachamim. So the Ramban agreed with that second opinion, that the reason why we make him be quiet is because he's making God's gazero into um, Rachamim. But this is the way the Ramban interpreted it. That we make the... We, we don't know what was, again, this is the rough salvagic logic. We don't know what God's motivation was, and we don't know if God was Rachamim, so he made us chase away the mother bird. So we can't say Hashem has Rachamim on his creatures, but rather what we know is what the mitzvah does for us. What the mitzvah does for us is that the mitzvah makes us into merciful people. When we do Shiluah HaKan and we think about, wow, this is a mother bird who's going to be in pain if, um, if she sees me take away well, her children. So I do an act that's going to create me, that's going to form me into a more merciful person. I chase away that mother bird, and then I take the eggs. So I don't know why the God commanded, did he have mercy on the bird? I don't know. But I do know that if I do this mitzvah, I will come out of it a more refined and better person. And maybe the next time when I'm dealing with people, I'll be able to use, you know, my sensitivity with the animals and plug it in when I'm dealing with people. So we don't strive, the Rav used to use this as a, as a basis, we don't strive to understand what God was doing, but we do strive to understand the process of what's happening to us. Because if we're cognizant of what's going on with us, we'll be able to let it spill over more into our lives. Um, so just to really wrap everything up, um, this question is still alive today. This is not one of those questions where we come out with an answer. You know, this is the approach. There have been conflicting evidence. There's conflicting evidence in the Gemara. Um, and today the debate continues. Um, what I tried to do after the Gemara is show you different opinions that would give you some of the different ways to go with it. The Rambam, the Rambam was the extreme of saying, yes, there are reasons. God wants us to figure it out, and we should search for that. Yeshayahu Levis was the other extreme in saying, don't look for reasons. That's not part of your religious service. Your religious service is just doing and Rav Salvech, I think, is a middle ground in saying we can't figure out objective reasons, but we do need to make the mitzvah meaningful for us. Now, in truth, I think what's demanded of us as Jews to keep mitzvot unconditionally, right? even if we don't like a mitzvah, we don't feel good about it, we're still required to keep it. 
as well as finding meaning within the mitzvot, are in a sense opposing forces. There's, there is a certain dialectic in that quest. But I think this is the struggle that we all experience as individuals, and I hope studying these sources will help us inject meaning into our performance of mitzvot. Thank you.